Acts chapter 22. We will be reading verses 1 through 16. This is what Holy Scripture says. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God and all of you, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me, and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and open to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. Have you ever heard the name Charles Finney, F-I-N-N-E-Y, Finney, Charles Finney? It's a name you should know, I think, because even though he has mostly been forgotten to history, his inventions and his practices profoundly shaped how a lot of us understand what it means to become a Christian and what it means to be part of a church. And we are in the midst of a topical series, uh, not preaching just one book of the Bible, but thinking about the topic of the church. 
And as we're making our way through that series, I have been offering up, first of all, what I would call a definition of the church. That was sermon number one. The local church is a group of saved people who identify with one another and seek to glorify God by regularly gathering together to worship him, proclaim his word, affirm one another's profession of faith by the practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and display to the world his gospel by their authentic, their genuine love for one another. That's what a church is. And then the second time we ta- thought about the church, uh, we started to consider baptism. And here in that sermon, I suggested that baptism is an initiation rite that follows your conversion and leads to membership in the church, born again into the universal church, baptized into the local church. And this morning, I want to continue to think about baptism, not so much as how baptism relates to church membership, but what baptism itself actually is. What is meant by it? What does it symbolize? What does it teach? What does it mean? And that gets us back to Charles Finney. Finney lived uh, 1792 to 1866. Uh, Finney was uh, professed faith a bit later in life. Uh, He was a part of a good Presbyterian church where the gospel was preached. He himself never went to seminary, but he began preaching and then began preaching what he called revival meetings. These were special events that he believed, and these these will be his own words, he believed that these things were done correctly it guaranteed people would get saved. That is a theological statement. (laughs) If you do this correctly, this result will happen. Here's what Finney wrote. A revival is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely the philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. So in essence... Finney replaced a profession of faith in Christ and baptism in a local church with coming forward at a revival meeting. And you can read all about this in uh, the excellent book. I highly recommend it. It's called Revivals, Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray, Banner of Truth. Excellent book. Been out for years. Encouraging to me. I, I, I think I read it the first time in 1996 and profoundly shaped my understanding both of the gospel and what true revival is. But Finney, Finney at heart was a pragmatist. He, he was not a biblicist. That means he trusted in certain techniques above what the scriptures revealed. And he set out, and this is his quote, I want to make regeneration easier for people. And he was drawn uh, to what he would describe as visible results, results that you can see. So instead of a call to believe on Christ and be baptized, there was a call to come forward to the mourner's bench, you heard of this, or the anxious seat, the altar, the altar call, that's where all of this comes from. And that that the altar, the mourner's bench, the anxious seat, all of that is the place where you go to get saved. You'd come there, you would kneel there, you'd pray a prayer. It's a very outward, it's a very visible thing, kind of like an ordinance, outward, visible. But fundamentally different than an ordinance in a couple of significant ways. Number one, 
or, or never told anywhere in the Bible that that's how people are supposed to get saved. That might be news to you. You might think, like, that's how you're supposed to get saved. You might think you've got to pray the sinner's prayer to get saved. That ain't in the Bible, friend. Uh, what you have to do is repent and believe on Christ. There's nothing about coming down front at a revival meeting or rally. There's nothing about praying a certain set prayer. So what Finney was doing was not necessarily wrong until the moment he said it was necessary and required for salvation. And at that moment we say, well, then we will absolutely never do it (laughs) because you're adding to the gospel. The other difference between what Finney was doing and a church ordinance is it put all the emphasis on the individual rather than on Jesus. I'll try to show you that as we move along. Finney, if you read about his life, uh, really his thought was, you know what, churches get in the way of real spiritual work. And I've heard people say that today. (laughs) Churches get in the way of the real work of the gospel. If somebody tells you that, if you're thinking that, well, first of all, you're wrong. Uh, Because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, it is God's prescribed means by which he's going to work. It's it's the church that he dies for. It's the church that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against. So you're just wrong. But if you buy that little thing, what's going to happen is you're going to start to look at, at methods as opposed to what God has revealed. And Finney said, my methods guarantee results, which means if there's no results, you're doing something wrong. What does all that have to do with baptism? Okay, here we go. As I said, people over time began to confuse their own self-will, their own decisions with the grace of God. They were focusing on their feet, not on Jesus. And by their feet, I mean going forward at a meeting. And they say, as long as you just move your body forward, you're good with God. And interestingly, as you trace our church history from those years of Finney onward, Believer's baptism came to take on less and less importance in the broader church. What people really wanted to know was, did you go forward? Did you make a decision? And we would refer to this as decisionism. As we will see, as an initiation rite, believer's baptism is something done to you by the people of Jesus, it is loaded with meaning about what Jesus did in order to save you. It will strengthen your confidence in Jesus and his salvation of you every time you look back on your own baptism, and it ought to fill you with fresh confidence and gratitude for Jesus every time you witness another baptism. Susan and I have been married happily uh, for 33 years. I thank the Lord for that. So does she because she's married to me. And uh, one of the things we have loved doing all the years we've been married is leading other couples in pre-marriage counseling. And we essentially do, most of what we do is stuff that was done for us when we were engaged and meeting with her dad who was a pastor and he was training and teaching us and we just took a lot of that and we've done that with many of you. We love doing that Because every time we do it, we're like, oh, man, this is good for our marriage. (laughs) Going through this reminds me of those things we need to be committed to. Reminds me what love is. Reminds me what it means to sacrifice. Reminds me what it means to be committed. And the Word of God does its work in me in a fresh way. And I'm just so very thankful for it. Every new baptism is an opportunity for you to better understand your own baptism 
and to rejoice even more in what God has done for you. It should be like me and Susan doing pre-marriage counseling with a newly married couple. Every time you see another baptism, you're just like, that takes me back to my baptism. I understand my baptism better now than I did when I was baptized. That's fine. And I'm rejoicing all the more in what God has done for me through Christ. So with all that in mind, let's think about what baptism means. Baptism, we have said, is an initiation rite uh, when the person joins the local church and three things are being pictured or signified as far as what Jesus has done to the person. And the more we grasp what is being signified, the more blessed we will be as a church, the more collective our joy will be when other people are baptized. So what does your baptism teach you, or what does every baptism teach you about your baptism? What does it say, what does every baptism teach you about Jesus? And what does every baptism say about you? So here we go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and the first thing. The trickiest thing, number one. You have come through the judgment safely. I think if you understand this, you will begin to understand believer's baptism in amazing ways. So there's about nine, ten places in the New Testament where outside of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where baptism is addressed. And I'm going to look at three of them on, on my three points. They, they kind of summarize all of them. I won't get to every one of them, but I'm not like avoiding anything. So we start with a tricky one, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. All right. Let's just kind of move our way through this carefully. Who's Peter writing to? Peter is writing to encourage Christians, most of whom have lost everything because of their faith in Jesus, and they've been scattered around the known world. And he's writing and he's assuring them that Christ will safely usher them into the presence of the Father. That's that phrase, he will bring us to God. And he will do this by virtue of the great exchange, the righteous one in exchange for the unrighteous ones. The righteous one, Jesus, who suffered once for all time the penalty for the sins of his people, who are his people, the unrighteous. And thus the great exchange. We give Jesus our sin and guilt. He gives us his perfect and holy life. And this, of course, is accomplished, as Peter makes very, very clear, by the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And this whole event of Jesus rising from the dead and then appearing to his disciples, followed by his ascension to the right hand of the Father in glory, this whole event included a keruxing. A, that's a Greek word, keruxing. It means a, a herald or a proclaimer or to proclaim, to herald, to preach. And this, this proclamation was to the spirits in prison, says Peter. So Peter says that Jesus himself announced something to the incarcerated demons in the spiritual realm. 
Now, what he said, we're not told, but we are told in verse 22, if you look down there, that all of these evil angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him and to his rule. And so when you combine this, this shout of this, this keruxing, this proclamation with all these evil powers being subjected to him, when you combine those together, what you get is a victory shout. It was as if Jesus entered into the spiritual realm. Here he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he looks at the evil spiritual realm and he says, I won. All these are mine, and you can't lay your dirty hands on them, Satan. They are mine. You lose. That's his kerukes. Now, it's possible that the demonic host he had most in mind were, if they are angels in Genesis 6 that are cohabiting with human women, it's, it's disputed, but it's possible that he has these angels in particular in mind, and that would make sense of why Peter goes where he goes next, because he's thinking of Genesis 6, because Genesis 6 is the narrative of the flood where God judges humankind because of their great sin. And so Peter continues, verse 20, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Who are the eight people? Noah, Noah's wife, Mrs. Noah, and then he had three sons, and they were all married. That's six plus two is eight. I did mental math. Thank you. So eight people. Remember, what do we know about Noah? We're told in Genesis 6 that Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the Old Testament way of saying God was gracious to Noah. He showed him grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, God extended grace to Noah. God saved Noah. Noah, Noah who is also called by Peter, interestingly, in 2 Peter, he's called a kerux. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, a kerux, a preacher of righteousness. So Noah himself is a preacher of righteousness. He preached, we assume, as he built that boat over the years. In fact, the building of that big boat itself was a kind of preaching, for it was a great illustration of salvation. And the message of Noah was very simple. Hey, friends, God is going to justly destroy all mankind because of their sins, and only those people hidden in that boat will be saved. Genesis 7, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with them. They went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. God closed to the door. The flood came. All flesh was destroyed. The waters receded. And Noah and his family walked out into what? A new creation, dry land. They were saved. Because they were hidden in the ark, God's appointed means of salvation from the judgment flood because they were hidden there, 
they were saved. They came through the waters of judgment safely. You see? That's what you have to hold in your mind as you go to the next verse, verse 21 in Peter. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christian baptism, Peter says, corresponds to this. Corresponds to what? What's the this? It corresponds to eight people being safely brought through the judgment. In fact, Peter is saying that the flood was a type of an anti-type. You don't have to know what that is. A type is something that comes first. The anti-type comes later. The, The one that comes first is called a type because it is pointing forward to the fulfillment, to the real thing. Maybe you're working with a jeweler in another country and and you're trying to describe the ring that you want that jeweler to create for you. And so they fashion a kind of ring and then they they take it and they press the head of the ring into some wax and they put that little wax impression in an envelope because the internet doesn't exist in my illustration. And, uh, And they mail that to you and you get that wax impression. That's kind of the ring, but it's not the ring, right? It's it's the type. The, the tupos, the impression of the ring. You can get a good idea of what the ring is, but you're waiting to see the real thing. Peter is telling us that that grand flood, one of its purposes was to teach us about Christian baptism. It is in this sense that baptism now saves you, not in a sacramental sense. There's no special power in the water or in the person dunking you in the water. Peter says it, not a removal of dirt from the body. I'm not saying that the, that the physical act of immersion by putting you in, a, in the bath and bringing you out again is what is saving you. We know that salvation is by grace through faith, not the result of any work, even a religious work like baptism. So Peter wants you to understand baptism as an act, as the physical thing does not save you. How is anyone saved? Peter tells you, verse 21, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the usual language or vocabulary for repentance and faith, but that seems to be precisely what Peter's getting at here. Peter says, at your baptism, you are declaring your complete confidence in the finished work of Jesus. You're in your baptism, you're standing in front of the church and you're saying, Jesus is my ark. He brings me through the waters of judgment safely. You are keruxing what Jesus keruxed. You are standing in those waters and saying, I have come through the waters of judgment safely because I am hidden in Christ. And because of his resurrection, I am totally confident that he has saved me. After all, he keruxed that message to the demonic powers. And no matter what happens to me in this life, even if I suffer and and have terrible death, whatever happens, I shall be with the Lord forever. It is appointed unto man to die, and then comes the judgment. That applies to everybody in this room. You die, you meet God. Everyone will be at the judgment. 
but only those who have been saved by Jesus will travel safely through the judgment. Those raging waters of the flood were meant to be a picture of death and of judgment, which means next time we baptize somebody, which I hope is soon because I've been thinking a lot about baptism, but the next time we baptize somebody, you look at that water in the tank and you remember the flood. Our baptisms are kind of pristine and chlorine here. Uh, I kind of liked my days as the pastor of the Chesley Baptist Church because the baptistry leaked, so we couldn't use it. So we went to the muddy, dirty, sogging river, and it was cold, and it was swirling, and it was dark, and in many ways, I think that's a better picture of Christian baptism. The floodwaters in Noah's day were terrifying, and they were terrifying because they represented death. Everything that went down into that water died. Those waters were the means of judgment. You know, some of the, uh, I, one of the books I read on my sabbatical, I was so happy to read this early uh, English Baptists who were able to build a little chapel to worship in and had a little graveyard outside. Many of them, in the middle of their graveyard, dug a baptismal pool. And so you would walk out on some day for someone to be baptized, and there were all the headstones of all the graves of all the Christians who'd gone before you, and then you would walk down into that watery grave and be baptized and raised again. Oh, man, I want to buy a building and get a graveyard just to do that. Why? When that baptismal candidate is plunged beneath the water, it is a picture to us of what he or she deserves because of their sins, death. But we don't hold them under there. We bring them up again. He comes through the judgment safely. There's a reason for this. We'll see that reason in our next passage. So turn over to Romans chapter 6. We'll begin to tie these things together. The second thing baptism says about us is this. You are one with Jesus Christ. This is Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now notice, first of all, that Paul assumes everyone he's writing to is a baptized person. It's just assumed in the text. He told us in, in chapter 1 who he's writing to. He's writing to the Christians who are the church in Rome. In fact, in, if you go to chapter 16, he names a whole bunch of them, maybe all of them, I don't know. But he's writing to Christians, and he assumes that all these Christians have been baptized. It would never cross his mind that they weren't. So knowing that they're all baptized, Paul uses their baptism as a way to help them more fully understand their relationship to Jesus. So this is Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him or through him, or sorry, with him 
by baptism or through baptism. Have you ever noticed uh, when the pastors of this church baptize someone, they look at the person, they say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they take the person, and as they put them under the water, they say to them, buried with him in his death. Do you know what's next? Raised with him to newness of life. The Bible doesn't tell us we have to say that, but this is the part in the Bible that leads us to say that. And in particular, why we add or include with him. Those are very important words. Buried with him. Raised with him. Paul would say, for instance, in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So I later into the Galatians, uh, chapter 3, verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So even in this chapter, Romans chapter 6, look at verse 6, crucified with him, verse 9, we died with Christ, verse 9, we live with him. All of that is coming out of Romans chapter 5, which was in the latter half, uh, verses 12 to 21, is all about the second Adam, our representative head, Jesus, compared to the first Adam, the one in the Garden of Eden. And, and Paul is saying we've got this vital, unique identify, uh, un, identif identification and union with Christ. So he compares these, the, he says, you know, you're either in the old Adam or you're in the new Adam. Romans 5, verse 19, for as by one man's, this is Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's, Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So how does all of that relate to baptism? This genuine, vital union that you have with Christ means essentially everything that happened to Jesus has happened to you. We were buried, look at there, verse 4, Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The reason you can symbolically come through the waters of judgment safely is because Jesus has in reality come through the waters of judgment safely and you are one with him. That's similar language to what Paul wrote to the Colossians chapter 2 verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The old you was as good and buried in the grave as the body of Jesus was, and the new you is as good and alive as the now resurrected Jesus is. And that vital union with Jesus is pictured in your baptism. As Christ himself died and was buried and resurrected, your baptism pictures your death and your resurrection in him. Paul is using that truth here in Romans chapter 6 to teach the baptized Christians that they can finally stop sinning. That's the point of Romans 6. And the first stop 
to killing sin is thinking correctly about your unity and identification with Jesus, Romans 6, 11. So you must also reckon or consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So your baptism pictures this vital, real unity with Christ, buried with him, raised with him. The water is a picture of judgment and death. You go down, you die, you come up, you live, and it is all in him. Friend, are you hidden in the ark? Kids, I don't know about you, but every time I see storybooks about Noah's ark, there's, it's all about the animals, the animals, the animals, the animals, and that's fine. But all the animals could get into the ark. And no Noah and his family. And you wouldn't be here to know about the animals. The most important passengers on that boat were the eight. Noah, Mrs. Noah, and the kids. God was gracious to Noah. He was gracious to Noah's family. They got into the ark when God told them to. They stayed in the ark after God closed the door behind them. They got out of the ark into the new world which God brought them safely to. Jesus is not a boat, but Jesus is like that big boat of Noah's, the ark. You simply have to be in him. You've got to be in Christ in order to be saved. There are no other boats, no secret islands, no spiritual inflatables that'll sneakily float you up into heaven. Get into the ark, my friend. Get into Christ. Be one with Christ. The only way to come safely through the final judgment is to be a passenger on the HMS Jesus Christ. Once God has saved you, tell it to the church. And the church with joy will be delighted to baptize you. You will declare to us, I am one with Christ. And Christ has carried me safely through the judgment. But there's a third thing you will declare. It is this, that your sins have been entirely washed away. Now go to Acts chapter 22, the passage that Patrick read for us earlier. After God saved the Apostle Paul, he sent a Christian from the church there in Damascus to go deliver a message to Paul. That was a daunting task, right? Because the day before, they got word that Paul was coming to arrest them, potentially kill them. And he, poor Ananias, it's like, go talk to him. Anyway, Ananias obeys the Lord, and he tells the newly converted Paul, this is Acts 22, verse 14, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Acts 9 tells us immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, then he rose, and he was baptized. Okay, I wonder what that's like for Paul. Wash away your sins, Paul. Wash away the sin of the murder of Stephen from a couple weeks ago. 
Wash away the sins of your arrest and binding of the innocent. Wash away the sins of your ravaging of that church in Jerusalem. Wash away the sins of your unjust arrest and imprisonment of the innocent Christians. Yeah, you, Paul, the same one that Jesus had asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that you've repented from those sins and believed on Christ as your Savior, no longer your enemy, Wash them all away. Get up. Get baptized. Wash away all those sins, all the sins before them. What did Ananias mean? Did he mean that the water had spiritual, sacerdotal properties by which real sins could be washed off a real physical body? Of course not. Quite clearly, he meant what Peter meant, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet the washing away of sins is most certainly what that baptism pictured or symbolized. I saw this week on the wonderful interwebs that you can purchase a black goth bath bomb. I practiced saying that all week. It's hard to say. A bath bomb, right? Those things you put in the bathtub and it turns the water a color. You get a one, it's a goth black bomb and it just turns your water in your bathtub instantly black. And I thought to myself, maybe we should buy those and give those to the people we're baptizing and they could put it in their back pocket and they go down into the water and the water turns all black and they come up and the black doesn't stick to you, right? Like it all just stays in the water and the, and the water, like look, there's their sins have been all washed away. That is a very bad idea. We are not going to do that. That would be adding to God's word. But it is an interesting picture to me because I think out of all the pictures of baptism, most of us understand this one. A baptism is a kind of symbolic bath. Now, I don't think at all for a second that Jesus had baptism in mind when he was washing the disciples' feet. But I want to think about that moment because do you remember how he and Peter were, were talking about that moment? Peter sees the foot washing going on and he says to Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, because Judas was there. So using this foot washing as an illustration, Jesus taught that a person only needs to be washed once. And after that, they will require the ongoing confession and forgiveness that Christians do all the time, which is symbolized by getting your feet washed. So the idea he's communicating to Peter is, look, Peter, you're, you're saved. You've been washed. You've taken the bath already. Now, as you walk through this dirty world as a Christian, you're going to pick up some dirt on those feet of yours, and you're, you're going to need to deal with it, and that's the foot washing. And I think there's a similar idea present in baptism. We are only baptized once. It is a picture to everyone who witnesses it that our sins have been washed away. We are clean forever, which means when inevitably you sin 
after your baptism, you don't need to get baptized again. But you do need to get your feet washed. And he told us how. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Are your feet clean, fellow Christian? A baptism may be a good place to reflect on that and to remember what Christ has done for you, washing away all your sin and guilt. It pictures to us what I think John, the apostle, would call blood laundry. A very interesting image in his Revelation, chapter 7, verse 14, when he says, Christians are those who have washed their robes and made them, do you know, white in what? In the blood of the Lamb. I don't know about you, but anytime I got blood on anything, it didn't turn white. This is a striking image. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What a washing is that? What a cleansing is that? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Robert Lowry. Friend, if God has saved you and you have been baptized, your baptism taught you and will continue to teach you. You have come through the waters of judgment safely. You are one with Jesus Christ, and your sins have been entirely washed away. And all of this is because of Christ, right? If you've been been paying attention, you'll see that all of this symbolism points to Jesus. So I trust you can see by what baptism means that it must be for believers only. It can't possibly signify what, say for instance, an infant who cannot express faith in Christ and cannot repent of their sins. This is why we would say uh, the sprinkling of a child in a service we would not consider a true Christian baptism. I'd be glad to talk to you more about that. doesn't mean that Presbyterians are not Christians. Some of my best friends are Presbyterians. I just think they're wrong. And that's okay. And I think if you understand what believer's baptism is, you begin to understand all the joy of celebrating it and what it means. If you're not baptized... Consider all the blessing that you're missing. So I leave you with the words of Peter. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God himself calls to himself. Has he called you? That will be evident to us if you are baptized. Let's pray together.
Jesus, you looked at your disciples and said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Seems to me then, Lord, that the most important thing for us is to study this book hard and make sure that before you we can say, looking you in the eye as it were, I'm keeping all your commandments. The path to destruction is littered with those who said, I will keep all your commandments but these three or four. If there's any of that in any of our hearts, please convict us of our sins. And by your grace, help us to do what you say. You said that everyone who heard your words and did not do them would be like a man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds beat against it, it fell, and great was its fall. So, Lord, our great prayer today is that every person here can say, I'm doing everything I know that God has told me to do. And whether that's baptism or whether that's... uh, speaking better to a spouse or whether that's obeying a parent, whatever it is, Lord, make us people who say we're going to obey no matter what. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.